The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be shifting our attention away from Africa into the Middle East and the Persian Gulf area. We've talked about a number of times on this podcast how the line dividing those regions from Africa is blurring in the Chinese mindset, in part because they're intertwined by oil, by strategy, by military, security concerns, politics. A lot of it now is overlapping between the two. So we're going to take a look at MENA. There seems to have been a profound shift in terms of where the Chinese are buying their oil that's really picked up over the past couple of years. One statistic that I just absolutely love that comes from our good friend, Ambassador David Shin at George Washington University. And he writes that back in 2008, China sourced 30% of its oil from Africa from three different African countries, the Republic of Congo, Sudan, back then it was only one Sudan, and also uh, Angola. Today, back in 20, that's in 2018, that number had fallen down to less than 18%, and only one country was in the top 10, just Angola. From 2019 to 2020, a major shift of oil buying also occurred from Africa into the Persian Gulf areas, where 47% increase went to Saudi Arabia alone. Now, in 2020, uh, Saudi Arabia appeared either number one or number two in terms of the top supplier for China in oil. So a big shift had happened. Looking at the region more broadly, roughly three out of four barrels of oil that exit the Persian Gulf go to Asia, with the largest segment going to China. Now, let's just be clear here. Uh, China is not the only buyer of Middle Eastern oil. Japan, South Korea are also big customers of the Saudis and the Iraqis and others. But roughly half of China's oil now comes from the Middle East and the North Africa region, mostly from Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Speaking of Iraq, just this week alone, the Chinese uh, defense contractor Norinco, one of their oil trading arms, closed a $2 billion prepayment deal for uh, 100 and I think it was something about 100 and. 50,000 barrels a day for five years of Iraqi oil. So again, it shows the heightened level of interest. Now, Kobus, the question I have for you, as we see the money moving into the Middle East and the, in the Persian Gulf, do you also see the politics following it? The Belt and Road obviously runs right through these countries in the, in the Persian Gulf. Should we also expect a similar political investment that's also going to be made by the Chinese in this region as well? Well, this is a really big question, a really big issue. So far, I, you know, kind of for, from my perspective, and we will obviously explore this more. Um, you know, we, we haven't seen a, a similar kind of push from China to to play a massive political security role in the region. You know, similar to the the way that the United States has. Um, in fact, China has been quite 
careful, you know, kind of in 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 terms of how of of you know kind of of, of the kind of choices it makes in, in in this particular field. But at the same time, China has also managed to to maintain friendly relationships with lots of different players, with you know, in that region. So you know, so so it clearly is it, it clearly has kind of political skills in that region, but but at the same time, quite relatively limited ambitions. But you know, kind of, I definitely would like to you know ask Afshin about that. Well, speaking of Afshin, we're so thrilled to have on the show for the first time, I can't believe after all these years, Afshin Malavi, who is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He's also the editor of the new Silk Road Monitor. It's been a long time, and you've never been on the show, but we're so happy to finally have you. A very good morning to you from Washington, D.C. Uh, good morning, good good afternoon, good evening uh, to you, Eric and Kobus, and it's a it's a it's a great honor to be on the show. I'm a, I'm a fan uh, and an admirer of the show and a regular listener. Well, that's great. We're really honored that you uh, that you follow it and also you subscribe to our newsletter, which we want to thank you for that as well. You wrote a piece back in December that was published uh, by the Hoover Institution out there at Stanford University called uh, "Enter the Dragon: China's Growing Influence in the Middle East and North Africa." I'm going to put a link in the show notes to it. It is basically a Cliff Notes 25-page article on everything you need to know about what the Chinese are doing in the Persian Gulf, Middle East, the MENA area. It's a hard region to define because it crosses a number of different regions and countries. But why don't you give us the overview, the executive summary about where we are today at this moment? I talked about the shift in oil buying. Kobus talked a little bit about the politics and security dimensions to this relationship. Let's start our conversation with a big, broad overview of where we are today in terms of China and the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, sure. Uh, th- thanks again, Eric. You know, uh, whenever you talk to Chinese uh, officials or leaders or official pronouncements um, from the Middle East or China, they often like to hearken back to these quote unquote old Silk Road bonds, right? You know, uh, between China and the Middle East. And there is some certainly some truth to that. Um, but I, I take my. Um, uh, I, I take my perspective from a much more recent event, and I look at the year 1993. And the reason I look at the year 1993, I call it the 1993 inflection point. Um, that's the year when China's uh, domestic production of oil um, uh, could no longer meet its consumption. So obviously, China was well on its way uh, to its extraordinary growth period, uh, and, and the lines intersected. And when the lines intersected, uh, consumption kept moving up and to the right, but China's local production of oil uh, stayed steady. And if you were, if we were to be looking at that map, um, you would see this wide gap uh, forming over the next 20, 25 years. So it was almost inevitable as China's consumption of oil was growing that they would begin to uh, um, engage with the big oil producers in the Middle East and North Africa region. I call China the great demand engine for commodities, the great demand engine for uh, oil and gas, and and that region has been in many ways the great supply engine. So this is basic demand uh, meeting supply. Uh, So in many ways, that, that part of the relationship I call China MENA 1.0, hydrocarbons exports ramping up from the Middle East and North Africa region to China, and manufactured goods making their way from China to buyers across the Middle East and North Africa region. It was a very simple and transactional relationship. And then if we go to the year 
2006. I'll take that as as a as an interesting hook year. The year 2006, um, King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz of Saudi Arabia had just ascended the throne a few months earlier, uh, and and he was uh, looking around. Uh, you are the head of state of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You can go anywhere you choose to go as your first head of state visit. Um, and and where did he choose to go first? He chose China to go first. And this is back in the year 2006. He saw the writing on the wall. Saudi Aramco saw the writing on the wall. Uh, they saw the demand growth uh, for Saudi Arabia's most important commodity. Uh, and uh, King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz chose China. Incidentally, he chose India as his second uh, visit. Um, so in many ways, this encapsulated what, what I call China MENA 2.0, which was this period where it wasn't only just hydrocarbon, uh, hydrocarbons for manufactured goods. We started seeing, in addition to capital flows and trade flows, we started seeing what I call heads of state flows, where heads of state from the Middle East and North Africa region, foreign ministers, senior officials were making their way to the Great Hall of the People and vice versa. Uh, so this is in many ways uh, 2.0. And, and one of the interesting events that took place around 2010 was when Agricultural Bank of China issued its initial public offering. Now, think about this for a moment. This, of course, being Agricultural Bank, you know, the, the bank that was meant to be for China's peasants. And suddenly um, this IPO is underwritten by Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And the two of the biggest uh, um, investors in this IPO were the Qatar Sovereign Wealth Fund and the Kuwait Sovereign Wealth Fund. Now, the reason this is important is because in the Mao era, the, 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 particularly the Persian Gulf Arab states, they were seen as part of the American uh, camp, part of the imperialist camp. Um, and, and China preferred relations with the Algerias and the Egypts and the Syrias and Iraq, the pan-Arab, non-aligned nationalist states. Uh, but the Arab world certainly looks a lot different to today's Chinese leaders than it did, of course, uh, to the Mao era. And finally, let me just you know uh, sum up here at this 30,000 uh, foot uh, um, level with what I call China MENA 3.0. So we've gone from hydrocarbons uh, to uh, for manufactured goods uh, 1.0 and then 2.0 became a denser relationship of trade and, and investment uh, and heads of state flows and senior official flows. But 3.0 is what's really interesting, uh, but we're not there yet. 3.0 is when we start to see China take a larger role in the security architecture of the Persian Gulf region. Uh, and we're not there yet. Um, uh, when you compare the, the amount of trade and the amount of flows uh, that go from, um, particularly oil flows that go from uh, the Middle East, North Africa region to China versus the Middle East, North Africa region to the US, there's no comparison. China's buying just a lot more from the region. But when you compare military and security relationships, there's also no comparison. The US is a has a far deeper security relationship with the region uh, than China does. Um, and we're not yet at 3.0. Know, and maybe we can discuss later um, where we might go to get to 3.0. So, you know, if we hone in on uh, on specific states within the region, um, you mentioned um, two African, two North African states as as that, that play, as you say, kind of like a pivotal role in the relationship between China and MENA, um, Egypt and Algeria. Um, what what are the specific issues involved in in those two cases? 
I'm, I'm glad you brought those up. So, so Egypt is interesting because, um, you know, of the, uh, the countries that make up, there's five countries uh, that make up, you know, uh, China's most important diplomatic relationship status, this comprehensive strategic partnership. Um, and, and of those five countries, uh, which are Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Egypt, um, uh, Iran, and Algeria, uh, the only one that's not a major oil and gas producer um, is Egypt. Um, so uh, China has taken a look at Egypt um, strategically um, and said, uh, okay, this country is not a major oil and gas producer, but it has enviable commercial geography, right? Um, after all, the, the Suez Canal uh, is an important entry point for a lot of uh, Chinese goods that make their way to Europe. Um, Egypt is not just an African country, it's an African Mediterranean country, it's a Middle East country, it's a, it's a Middle East North African country, it's an Arab country. So there's, got, there's a lot of uh, strategic geography there. So what, what has China done? Uh, China has uh, offered loans to Egypt when they've needed it. So for example, when Egypt was negotiating its mo- most recent IMF uh, bailout program, uh, the IMF said to Egypt, okay, we'll, we'll lend you the money, but we need you to find some others uh, to lend you money in conjunction with the money that we lend you. Um, and what did Egypt do? Egypt went to its usual sources, uh, particularly among the Gulf Arab states, and, uh, and, and it, it wasn't finding um, uh, the response that it normally gets. Ultimately, it did get a significant loan from the United Arab Emirates, but the biggest piece of the loan came from China, uh, up to $3 billion uh, from China that helped pave the way for an IMF loan. Um, China has also put money directly into Egypt's central bank. And China is building uh, a very important project, um, a very important project for Egypt and a very important project for President uh, al-Sisi, um, which is the New Capital City Project, um, a multi-billion dollar project to, to move parts of the administrative capital of Egypt away from congested and polluted Cairo to a new area. So all of this um, suggests that that, China is playing a very significant role in uh, the commercial and economic uh, future of Egypt. Um, And the question, though, does arise, is uh, Egypt becoming overly reliant and overly indebted uh, to China? Um, Thus far, Egypt doesn't rank among those countries that are, you know, that have those high debt exposures to China. But that's one uh, certainly to watch. Um, Algeria is a is a more um, traditional case. If you look at the countries that have received um, what I call the I call six countries make the twenty billion dollar plus club. These six countries have received more than twenty billion dollars of projects um, uh, from China uh, from two thousand five. And, and I use that word projects very carefully because sometimes people call these investments, but they're not necessarily foreign direct investment. Um, a lot of these are construction projects um, that Chinese contractors want to build subways or, or retail developments or ports. And, and the, of those six countries, again, it's 
It's, this, it's the familiar list, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Iran, Iraq, Algeria, and Egypt. Again, five of those six are major oil and gas producers. So Algeria um, was, winning lots of co- uh, was, was giving lots of contracts to Chinese contractors to build a whole range of things, including you know, a new opera house to you know, revamping um, its hospitality sector. Um, and and you know, it, we're looking at about $23 billion of investment over the past uh, uh, decade and a half. Um, and and there have been a lot of Chinese um, that have uh, made their way to Algeria. There's a Chinese town, there's a Chinatown just outside of, of Algiers. Um, it's a relationship that is is um, it, it's not one that is growing rapidly. You see that the numbers is, are trending downward a little bit uh, on Algeria, whereas numbers are trending upward a little bit on Morocco. And maybe I'll just close with Morocco here, given it, that it's North Africa. It hasn't attracted the same kind of numbers in any way, shape, or form of Algeria. But more recently, for example, um, uh, Morocco has decided they want to build a new tech city uh, called uh, Tangier Tech City in, in Tangier, Morocco, and, and, and the major investors are once again uh, China and Chinese companies. And all of this um, is kind of a long way of saying that, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago, when many of these North African countries were doing these kind of projects, they would immediately go to the West. Uh, and now they have an alternative. Uh, they have an alternative in Chinese companies um, and, and, and the Chinese uh, Export-Import Bank that will finance these kind of projects. Um, and, and we're seeing uh, a, a quite a significant difference on the ground. Well, that alternative really plays out nowhere more starker than in Saudi Arabia in the kingdom where Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman in many ways has, there's a lot, there's a, there's a, a, a valley between the United States and Saudi Arabia that did not exist in previous decades. And a lot of people suspect that it's because their largest customer now is in Beijing and not in Washington, and the United States becoming increasingly energy independent, no longer dependent on Saudi oil. So that, that alternative is playing out in, in very complex regional politics. Talk to us a little bit about the Saudi-China relationship and what it's done to the broader kind of security political dynamic in the region. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, um, a strategic relationship, I would argue, on, on both sides. Uh, so uh, let, me, let, me, let me start by, by saying that, um, you know, this, the Saudi Arabia has been selling um, oil to um, China for, you know, uh, more than two, two and a half decades or so. But, um, but Saudi Arabia did not initiate diplomatic relations with China until 1990. Uh, so it was one of the last countries in the Arab world to actually um, initiate formal diplomatic relations uh, with China. Um, and, and, you know, there was a when I was talking to some officials in uh, in in one of the Gulf Arab states, I thought I would share with you, uh, Kobus and Eric, one of the things he said um, uh, to me about um, uh, the relationships b- between China and, you know, his particular country. But I think it's it's it's, you know, appropriate for several of the Gulf Arab states. Um, And this is what the officials said. Um, uh, Quote, our American friends seem to be obsessed with China as a negative force, and they want the rest of us to be obsessed too. For us, China is a new player in the region, one that we can do business with, one that brings capital and technology for projects across our region and buys a considerable amount of oil and gas. It is hard for us to see this in a negative light. 
This does not mean that we no longer value the U.S. as a strategic partner. In fact, it's our most important strategic partner, but we do not see this as a zero-sum game. In, in many ways, this summarizes the Saudi-China-U.S. Uh, triangle. Um, Saudi officials will tell you that they still value immensely the U.S. Uh, security relationship and the U.S. diplomatic relationship, um, uh, but it doesn't mean um, that, that they feel like they need to choose sides. After all, um, Saudi Arabia... Uh, uh, exported 3.5 times more goods to China than it did to the United States. The United States is not uh, a, a significant uh, purchaser um, uh, of Saudi oil when compared to China. It is still a significant purchaser of Saudi crude oil, but, but as you both know, um, as the shale revolution um, uh, proceeds in the United States, Saudi Arabia um, and other Middle East oil producers will become less important sources of crude oil. Um, and so what I talk about in my paper is this striking visit that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman took to China in February of 2019. Now, if you recall, that was a period, it was, it was shortly after this tragic um, killing of Jamal Khashoggi uh, in the uh, Saudi consulate in Istanbul. Um, you know, Mohammed bin Salman um, uh, would certainly not have been welcome in Washington um, in February of 2019. Now, think about that for a moment. Um, when you think about the importance of the Saudi-U.S. security relationship, um, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, you know, would not have wanted to come to Washington in February of 2019, and he really would not have been received very well at all, certainly not by civil society, not even uh, perhaps by the Congress maybe only by the White House. But when he went to China in February of 2019, he was accorded, you know, all of the appropriate, um, you know, honors. There was a lot of pomp. There was a lot of ceremony. For Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, it felt normal again. Here he was in a country being given the red carpet treatment. A lot of big business deals were signed. Uh, and, 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 you know, President Xi um, described him as instrumental and, uh, uh, in, in growing this relationship. He cr described him as a valuable friend and partner. Uh, and so the question then becomes, um, if a, a crown prince of Saudi Arabia no longer feels welcome to visit the United States, does that mean that will head us closer towards China MENA 3.0, um, where, where China suddenly becomes an important part of the security uh, relationship of, of the security of Saudi Arabia? So I think that's, that's an important question to pose when you think about the Saudi-China uh, relationship. Another very controversial, you know, kind of triangular relationship is the one between the U.S., China, and Iran. Like, how how do you see how do you see the Chinese react? You know, kind of dealing with the, the the current complexities of of the relationship with Iran. You know, it's a that's an important one, Cobus, um, uh, because. Um, when you you know there's often this view that uh, China is uh, you know on Iran's side um, China you know it, you know is a significant purchaser of Iranian crude um, Chinese companies are willing to invest in Iran when no one else is willing to invest in Iran etc etc but the reality on the ground suggests that when the United States pushes China not to do things in Iran whether it's investment or trade, uh, China generally 
uh, adheres uh, to those. So, and, and this goes back to the Obama administration um, when the Obama administration began ramping up sanctions on Iran and began telling refiners in Asia um, that you need to cut your crude uh, imports uh, of um, Iranian oil, uh, many of those refiners, including Chinese refiners, would thump their chest and say, this is extraterritorial and you can't do this. Um, uh, but ultimately, they would abide. Um, uh, and, 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 and they would look around, they would look at the balance sheet, they would look at the United States, a you know, $20 trillion economy, they would look at Iran, which is an economy the size of the state of Ohio, uh, and then they would also look at the some of the difficulties of doing business in Iran, and they would say, "Well, you know, I, I don't mind buying this crude oil, um, and, and if I have to, according to, because the U.S. Treasury is going to be on my case, cut my crude oil imports by 20 percent or 25 percent, I will, because I can buy crude elsewhere. Um, but am I really going to invest in the long term in this in this market? And what happened was companies like China National Petroleum Company, um, uh, Sinopec, and others, they were very good at signing memorandums of understanding. They were very good at signing these contracts with National Iranian Oil Company, uh, making all sorts of pledges. And occasionally, they would even begin uh, some of these projects. But they would do so much foot dragging because of this environment of U.S. sanctions and because of the threat of U.S. sanctions that ultimately the National Iran oil company would get frustrated um, and and in on two occasions CNPC China National Petroleum Company has been booted out of Iranian projects by the National Iranian Oil Company for foot dragging um, so if you want to um, talk to someone uh, who gets really hot and bothered about uh, Chinese companies, talk to a senior official of the National Iranian Oil Company. Uh, they will tell you that, you know, oh, you know, they, they simply don't follow through on their promises. Yeah, it seems to me that the China-Iran relationship has been inflated uh, within the Beltway in Washington in order to create the threat, the China threat, that is really not there. As you as you quoted in your article, you quoted Karen Young from the American Enterprise Institute, uh, who says that proclamations of great strategic alliances are as of yet unfounded. Also, uh, Jonathan Fulton, who's the uh, assistant professor of political science at Zayed University in Abu Dhabi, we've had him on the show previously. You quoted him in your paper as well, and saying that he's kind of, he's been very adamant on Twitter and in his writing as well that says what the Chinese are doing in Iran is really no different than what it's doing in other parts of the region. To give us a sense now, we want to pull back the focus from the bilateral to look at the regional. Iran is, of course, a major security linchpin for the United States, especially now. Do you see the, the Chinese kind of coming in to play a larger security role in keeping with their status as a new emerging power that can do that? Are we, should we expect the PLA Navy now to be rolling their fleets through the Persian Gulf? in the same way that the Americans have over the past five, six decades? I think we're at least a decade away from China playing a significant security role uh, in the Persian Gulf region. And, and part of the reason I say that is um, twofold. Um, a, the countries of the, the six 
Arab countries of the Gulf Cooperation Council, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Bahrain, Oman, Kuwait, Qatar, uh, they're quite comfortable with this arrangement they have with the United States, where the United States is the security underwriter of the region, uh, and China is in some ways the commercial um, underwriter of the region by the amount of oil and gas uh, that they purchase. Um, and this is a perfectly acceptable arrangement for the GCC states. It may not be comfortable for Iran, but it's acceptable and comfortable for the GCC states. Uh, and until the GCC states make a move uh, and and say, you know what, we're no longer comfortable with this and we'd like China to play a much more significant security role in the region. Uh, I, I, I just don't, I don't see it, it happening in any significant way beyond um, some things like uh, arm sales. We have seen uh, a rise in uh, drone sales from China, particularly to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. But that's one of those um, issues where for a long time, the United States was refusing to sell uh, its top uh, technology drones to um, Gulf Arab states. And so they said, OK, fine, if you won't sell it to us, we'll go to China and buy it. But that's an entirely different thing um, than setting up military bases. The United States has at least a dozen military bases or facilities in the region. China has basically one in Djibouti, um, uh, the Arab League member Djibouti, um, uh, but it's not necessarily in the in the Middle East uh, region and the Persian Gulf region, so I think we're at least a decade away from that. Um, and, and and for China, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing. After all, they do they do like to talk about quote unquote non interference in the internal affairs of other countries. Of course, until they do interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. But um, but I think it's it's not entirely um, a, a bad arrangement for China either. They don't have to get involved in policing. Um, uh, uh, the Strait of Hormuz, uh, for example. Um, but, and, and here's the key point here. Um, if, let's just say, Iran, uh, because Iran is the, the state that, that often threatens to shut down the Strait of Hormuz, if Iran were to do so, A, it would be difficult for them to do so because the U.S. Navy could reopen it. Um, B, they would be cutting off their nose to spite their face because they need that uh, waterway to send their own oil uh, out to world markets. And C, it would really anger China. Um, and so China, in a sense, because of its oil purchases and its uh, natural gas purchases, has become a de facto um, Persian Gulf uh, security stakeholder. Um, and they don't want this region to be unstable. They don't want uh, anyone to try to close down the Strait of Hormuz. Um, and, and in fact, it's, it's, arguably, uh, it's arguably far more important to China's economic security than it is to the U.S., which is what, why sometimes this free rider question comes up. Is China a free rider on the American security umbrella? Um, well, maybe so. But as you said, Eric, early, early in the show, it's not just China that's buying oil from the region. It's South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, India, Singapore, all U.S. allies. And the U.S. is in many ways policing the global commons for these allies. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at the Wits University Journalism Department in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter 
at vidschinaafrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za. One of the things I, I, I was thinking about while reading your paper um, is, you know, oil oil and gas um, sales is, play such a massive role in the China, Chinese relationship with the entire region. Do you foresee um, RMB um, internationalization um, and a kind of a pressure from China to, to start buying oil directly in RMB rather than in US dollars starting to play a role in the region? You know, what we, what we have seen um, is... Uh, we've seen a lot of currency swap arrangements uh, um, with several countries, uh, and and that hasn't yet played itself out in oil purchases. Um, but we've seen these currency swap arrangements where, uh, you know, we we've seen uh, the UAE, for example, um, uh, and others do these arrangements with China, so they they could have basically RMB available for purchase of various um, uh, goods. You know, the oil market is so much a, a dollar-driven uh, market, and, and while I understand that there are moves uh, to move towards, uh, you know, away from the dollar, um, it, it just seems that, uh, you know, we're not close to that yet either. Having said that, um, you know, a place like uh, Dubai has become a major um, center of China trade and business, and they are setting up and, and would love to set themselves up as a major uh, uh, renminbi offshore center. Um, uh, and, and, and so, so I think, but we're not there yet in the oil market, uh, though we are there in general trade. I'd like to switch gears now away from geopolitics to the sensitive issue of Xinjiang and the mass internment of Uyghur Muslims. You write in your paper, uh, and I'm going to quote you here, those quiet tankers that drop their cargo for a hungry consumer, along with China's growing commercial ties across the region, help explain the deafening silence of the vast majority of MENA states regarding China's mass internment of up to a million Uyghur Muslims in Western China in quote-unquote re-education camps under extremely harsh conditions. Now, it's very interesting because not only have the Chinese denied any of those accusations that they are interning or imprisoning or violating human rights of Uyghurs, they've actually come to the heart of the Arab street to carry that message. And this goes back to Egypt. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is currently on his Africa tour. He starts every year in Africa. Last year at this time, he began his tour in Egypt, in Cairo, on the traditional, the famed Arab street. He brought the, the Chinese position on Xinjiang out. And not only was he embraced by the Egyptian leadership, there was no opposition to it. We have heard no opposition from the GCC, from the Arab League. We've not heard a single president, prime minister, or sheikh going to speak out against the Chinese. And what's interesting is that these are the same people who were very articulate and eloquent in their criticisms of the United States for the imprisonment of, of Muslim uh, folks in, uh, in Cuba, also for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and for violence against Muslims. And a lot of people outside of the region see a, a, a stark double standard that how is it possible that they can't say one thing about this when it is so visible and obvious and the evidence is there. It is. It really is amazing. And it help us understand their view on the Xinjiang issue and especially Saudi Arabia, who is the home of Mecca and Medina. And yet they have not said anything on this. And it's just it's just something that is very perplexing to outsiders who don't understand these regions and what the, the politics are. Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought this up, Eric. I mean, you know, I, I wish I wish there were a a really uh, a complex uh, answer here, but but and I don't mean to 
simplify this or, or make it crude, but but if you were to just take the GCC, the, the, the six Gulf Arab countries, plus Iran, uh, plus Iraq, and you were to add up their um, oil exports to China, you're, you're at roughly $145 billion for 2019, right? Um, and and, and that's, that's a significant... And then if you were to take each country, um, and let's take them one by one. Who is Saudi Arabia's number one export destination? China, $47.6 billion. Iraq's number one export destination, China, $22.4 billion. These are 2019 numbers. Uh, Iran is number one export destination, China, $20.7 billion. Oman's number one export destination, China, $15.3 billion. Kuwait's number one export destination, China, $13.6 billion. You know, UAE, Qatar, and Bahrain, China's number three or number four. Um, but, but really, it, it's, it's, it, there's, there's a, a powerful economic motive uh, at play here. Um, uh, and, and, and there's also, a, um, a, at the same time, there's uh, something going on, particularly in Saudi Arabia, since you brought up Saudi Arabia, where they have been actively um, fighting against uh, what they view as Islamist extremists, right? Um, uh, and, and you know, you know, this is a country that, you know, in the past has been soft on Islamist extremists and, and the pendulum has swung. Um, and, and so their argument is, well, if, if China says these, you know, are potentially Islamist extremists, then, then, you know, who are we to judge? Of course, you know, on the face of it, you know that's absurd, um, uh, but there, there there's that element at play here. But again, I don't want to um, oversimplify it. But there is a crude truth here. No, no, but but you make a you make a you make a very good point. And before Americans and Europeans get on their moral high horses, uh, let's not forget that President George W. Bush classified the East Turkmenistan Liberation Front as a terrorist group under the Global War on Terror. Separately, the United States has looked the other way on human rights violations in, in Saudi Arabia for decades. And that's the same case in the Arab Spring, in Qatar, in Bahrain, and in these other places as well. We have not paid attention to, to human rights violations there against women, against minorities, you name it. So I'm not sure that the United States and the Europe are well positioned necessarily to criticize the Chinese on the Uyghur situation simply because, well, we have more or less done the same in Saudi Arabia uh, for as long as the Saudis have been producing oil, do you see any comparable, any comparison there this, in that in that sense? It, no, uh, certainly. I mean, there, there, uh, I mean, you 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 hit on an important point there. Um, uh, when you know, there's, but there's always going to be double standards, uh, right, in international uh, politics, and those double standards are often um, uh, can be deduced by following the money, which is, which is kind of, you know, what I tried to do with this paper is I said that, look, I'm not quite sure where the geopolitics is going, but I can pinpoint where the money is going. Um, and, and sometimes the money will help us understand the geopolitics, not always, um, but sometimes it will help us understand the geopolitics and maybe not the geopolitics of today, but the geopolitics of 10 years from now or 15 years from now or 20 years from now. Um, and if you look at the Flows and and let's just say let's just compare um, Saudi Arabia to uh, China again. Saudi Arabia exports 3.5 times more 
to China than it does to the United States. Let's take Oman. Oman exports 25 times more to China than it does to the United States. Uh, Qatar exports nine times more to China than it does to the United States. Kuwait which, you know, in many ways was, was saved by the United States, exports eight times more to China than the United States. And even Iraq is about 3.5 times more to China than to the United States. Um, so, you know, there is a crude truth here, um, uh, which, you know, I'm using that pun um, literally about the oil exports uh, uh, to the region. Um, but there's also a sense in the region uh, broadly um, that, they don't necessarily want to hear um, from the United States on some of these issues. You know, um, look, when it comes to the Uyghurs, I want to take the Uyghurs out of this because I don't think it's moralizing when you talk about the Uyghurs. There's something um, wrong going on there. But I'm talking about on other issues. They don't want to necessarily hear moralizing from the United States, um, a country that they don't you know, necessarily view um, as one that always adheres to the highest standards uh, regionally. Um, you know, looking at China's entire strategy in the region, you, you point out that China is essentially following what you call a one plus two plus three strategy. What, what does that mean? What do those numbers refer to? Sure. So um, shortly before uh, President Xi um, made his kind of landmark visit to the region in 2016, where he visited uh, Iran, uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And by the way, that was quite a um, um, tightrope walk because he visited Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, at the height of tensions between those two countries. Um, Saudi Arabia had recently executed a prominent Shiite uh, dissident cleric. Um, Iranian protesters had recently protested at the Saudi embassy in Tehran and eventually torched it. Um, so there's not many leaders who could have made that kind of tightrope visit um, at, a, at, a, at a very tense time. But shortly before he made that visit, um, uh, China's foreign ministry laid out its Arab world strategy. Uh, and it was, you know, kind of a workmanlike title, as, as you both know better than I. Um, uh, they, they, you know, the, when these foreign ministry papers come out, they often have these workmanlike titles. And, it, and the title of the paper was called China's Arab Policy Paper. Um, and, and, and they d d delivered something called the one plus two plus three strategy. Um, and so the one was the, the, what they called the core. Um, and, and the core focused on energy cooperation. So that's where they see the core of this Arab uh, policy. Um, the two were what they call the two wings. Um, uh, and these are the exact words that they use, the two quote unquote wings. Uh, and these two wings are infrastructure construction is one of the wings and trade and investment facilitation is the other wing. Um, and then the three refers to this triumvirate of high and new tech fields of nuclear energy, uh, space satellite, and new energy, um, what the, this foreign ministry paper called the three breakthroughs. Um, so it, it encapsulated, this paper encapsulated, this one plus two plus three strategy encapsulated what uh, China had already been doing um, in, in several of these countries and what they hope to do uh, going forward. Uh, and, and in many ways, when you look at the one plus two plus three, 
um, you know, some countries stand out. So the UAE stands out in, in some ways because the one energy cooperation, China has won several upstream concessions in uh, UAE projects. Um, uh, UAE, though not one of the major um, sellers of oil uh, to China, um, they're number seven or number eight. Um, uh, but more importantly, China's invested in the UAE's um, oil sector. And the two infrastructure construction and trade and investment facilitation, infrastructure construction, um, more than $30 billion of projects in the UAE since 2005. A lot of those were in infrastructure construction. But the trade piece is very interesting. And I also talk about how while there was this in inevitability that China would would uh, become closer to several of the oil-producing Gulf Arab states, there was an, also an inevitability that China, the world's largest trading nation, would become closer to the UAE, which which of a country of 10 million people does more international trade than Brazil. And why does the UAE do more international trade than Brazil? Because of its logistics hubs, its air hub, and its uh, ports. Uh, the Jebel Ali Container Terminal Port in Dubai is the ninth busiest container terminal port in the world. So you've got the two you know, really um, connecting uh, in, in the one plus two plus three with the UAE. And the third one, high-end tech, uh, new tech fields of nuclear energy, space satellite, new energy. Um, uh, we're seeing um, the, the Chinese uh, have been very actively involved in all of uh, the, the new uh, big projects of renewable energy uh, in the UAE. Um, the Chinese obviously made a lot of headlines with some of the projects they did in uh, vaccines um, uh, and vaccine distribution in the UAE. And we're seeing a lot more uh, Chinese investment in fields of emerging technologies um, in the UAE, AI cooperation and the like. So the one plus two plus three is what they hope to do. And, and what they're really doing in the UAE is probably the best example of the one plus two plus three. Since we're doing this show at the beginning of the year, it's the new year. Uh, and we just did a show earlier in the, in the week on looking forward in 2021, what to expect. Uh, give us your assessment, your forecast, and it's a great way to end our discussion today about what you're expecting in the year ahead for China and MENA. Do you see it, you know, China MENA 3.0 coming this year, or is that something that will take some more time? What are some key things that people should focus on for this year in terms of what China's doing in the Persian Gulf and North Africa? Sure. Uh, I, I would focus, I, I'd look at, uh, obviously, uh, I continue to look at oil, um, and it looks like we're headed for a, um, you know, a modest uh, uh, recovery in the oil price driven by a cyclical recovery in, in, in demand and a post-COVID recovery uh, in demand. And so, um, uh, and so as the, the price rises, uh, we're going to see um, more of the particularly the oil and gas producers going to have more money at their disposal to continue doing some of the infrastructure projects uh, that they've been doing in the past. Uh, and, and that's going to bring them more you know, Chinese contractors delivering projects. And now, again, it's important to note that it's not only Chinese contractors that are doing projects in, in the uh, GCC states. We, we also see South Korean. Uh, we see Turkish contractors, uh, some European. But the Chinese have been growing uh, dramatically. So we'll continue to see more of that. Secondly, I think we'll continue to see um, more of what I call the heads of state flows, senior official flows. Um, uh, um, it, we're seeing that... Uh, 
um, uh, play out. Um, uh, we saw it play it over the past uh, two years. Let's you know watch it continue to play out in 2021. Um, I think we're still not headed for 3.0, China Mena 3.0 in 2021. I think there's going to be a lot of um, players in the region that are that are going to be watching very closely the Biden administration, watching very closely the signals that the Biden administration is going to be uh, giving them. Um, and one of the signals that the Biden administration has been giving them, and, and you know, Eric, you, you and, and Kobus, you know, know this uh, far better than I, but it does seem to me that while there are very few issues in Washington that that uh, Democrats and Republicans can agree on, um, it does seem to be that this idea that we need to quote unquote do something about China, you know, whatever that something may be, uh, that China is a challenge, whether it's an existential challenge or just a challenge, etc. But China is a challenge. Both sides seem to agree on that, and if both sides seem to agree on that, then then the the Gulf Arab states understand that, and they're going to continue to hedge their bets a little bit when it comes to China security, when it comes to China military, and they're going to be watching uh, the Biden administration. Um, and then just in a, in, a, in a more of a little bit of a longer term, but it, it's going to start this year, I think, is one of the things we're witnessing is the major Western oil majors, major Western oil companies are all getting into the business of renewables. And part of the reason they're getting into the business of renewables is because institutional investors are punishing them for being in the oil and gas business, right? Um, uh, and, and we're seeing a lot more um, uh, green uh, policies emerging in U.S. states, but also in European countries um, and, and net you know, um, carbon emission targets, et cetera, et cetera. So what's going to happen is, is a lot of these major Western oil and gas companies are uh, reducing their capital expenditure on oil and gas uh, um, exploration. Um, and while they're reducing that, we're going to face a situation 10 years from now, 15 years from now. By the way, this is happening this year, so I'm mentioning it in, in the outlook, but it's going to have effects 10 or 15 years from now, where, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, when the world is still going to be demanding fossil fuels, fossil fuels are still going to account for about 50% of the world's energy mix in 2040, according to most forecasts. And there's going to be a lot less of fossil fuels available from the major Western uh, players. And which means that China will have to go even more to the Saudi Aramcos of the world and the Abu Dhabi National Oil Companies of the world um, to source uh, their oil. Uh, and so watch that space in 2021 as well. So much to think about. If you want to get a summary of everything that Afshin's kind of gone through today, it's a lot to chew on. His paper is a great place to start. It's called Enter the Dragon, China's Growing Influence in the Middle East and North Africa. It's all very, very topical to what's happening right now. I highly recommend it. Again, I'll have the link in the show notes of this program so you can link directly to it. Highly recommend it. Afshin Malavi is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. He's also the editor of the new Silk Road Monitor and joins us from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, this is very important. If people want to connect with you and follow what you're doing at the new Silk Road Monitor and what you're reading and writing, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, new Silk Road Exchange at gmail.com. I'm open to uh 
story ideas, uh, tips, uh, thoughts, uh, uh, questions, comments, and vigorous objections as well. Um, and also, I'm on Twitter at Afshin Molavi, A-F-S-H-I-N Molavi on Twitter. I hope I'm not spoiling anything here. You are planning a podcast of your own. Tell us a little bit about that. I am. I'm, I'm, you know, you, both you and Kobus have been a great inspiration uh, to me. Um, uh, so we're, we're still in the early stages, but, but it's going to be a podcast that is going to be looking at some of the big trends in, in global affairs, particularly around these three themes of rapid urbanization and unprecedented connectivity and growing middle classes. I, I, I had a podcast, um, uh, a group podcast that I did a couple of years ago called The 85%. Um, and that was based on the idea that 85% of the world lives outside of Northern America and Europe. And so it's an attempt to look at, um, you know, the, the quote unquote rise of the rest, which is actually the most rather than the rest if you look at the uh, demographic numbers. And I guess the best way to put it is I was at a um, at a gathering uh, 11, 12 years ago um, uh, in Dubai, and I met an investment banker um, who had just moved to the region from London. Uh, and I asked him why he moved to the region. Uh, and he said, I moved to the region um, because in my business, it's Shanghai, Mumbai, Dubai, or goodbye. Um, and the idea was that there is this emerging world out there, uh, and, and, and we need to be covering it, we need to be um, uh, investing in it, uh, and we need to be uh, in that world. And so I'm going to be kind of trying to unpack that world of Shanghai, Mumbai, Dubai, or goodbye. Oh, we love it. That is right up our alley. As soon as the show is out, uh, we will let everybody know, and we hope that our audience will subscribe to Afshin's uh, podcast. Once again, Afshin, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to join us this morning. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. It's an honor to be with you both. Thank you. Kobus, I'm trying to get my head around everything that we talked about. There's so many fascinating points. Just for me personally, the China-Mena relationship is so complex, so multifaceted, so fascinating, and so poorly understood. Uh, I'm just absolutely fascinated by it. And it's one of the reasons that in the podcast and the newsletters, we're going to start to do more. We're going to dive into this because I think there's just a lot to chew on here. But the thing that stood out to me more than anything that Afshin said was that quote, from a senior official from a U.S. ally in the Persian Gulf. And boy, that should be the bumper sticker for everybody throughout the global south when they said, our American friends seem to be obsessed with China as a negative force, but we do not see this as a zero-sum game. We've heard that line coming out of President Uru Kenyatta. We've heard it come out of President Buhari. And then here in Asia, the ASEAN countries have all said the same things, that they don't want to get caught up between the United States and China. It's not a zero-sum game. And I think it really shows how tone-deaf American foreign policy on China has been, at least in this context of framing it in a binary way, good versus bad. Because that is not the way that most countries throughout the global south see the U.S.-China axis. They don't want to have to make a choice. And I'm really hoping that the incoming Biden administration will listen to that. That doesn't mean that the United States has to be soft on China. It just means you have to listen to what these different countries are saying. And that quote in, in Option's paper, I think anybody in the U.S. foreign policy community should read that very, very closely and take it to heart. Yes, I agree. I mean, the the issue, of course, like one one of the the issues that that underlies that that kind of that way of seeing it is I think that there is some 
You know, like China being simply another another option um, is great for the global south, but the global south being on the hook to the U.S. and having no other option than the U.S. is great for the U.S. So, you know, so you can see how the, both of those things can be true at once, um, you know, seen from different perspectives. Yeah, the problem, though, is that within the Beltway in Washington, again, as Afshin said, there is a consensus uh, and there's very little consensus on any issue. But China is the only issue that I can think of right now, and there's probably one or two others, but not many more, that uh, both Republicans and Democrats agree on. And being tough on China is one of them. So I'm not entirely confident that we're going to see that new sophistication that's required, but it's something that everybody should be paying attention to. Uh, we're going to see the continued shift away from African oil towards Persian Gulf, Middle Eastern oil. I think that's kind of a, a given for this year. That trend doesn't seem like it's going to reverse. That being said, and this is what, what confuses me when studying this issue, is that there have been some rather sizable investments from the Chinese in the Nigerian oil sector. They're not backing away from Angola. They're still holding on in South Sudan as well. So, And the Republic of Congo still generates quite a bit of oil for the Chinese. So while I don't want to overstate the the fleeing away from uh, from African oil, it's still going to be very important, but just maybe not as important as it's been over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, final thoughts to you, Kobus. Yeah, I don't see it as a fleeing away from Africa. I see it as a diversification. Um, you know, that China, China has clearly, I think one of the lessons that China has learned from the Trump era has been never have all your eggs in one basket, never be dependent on, on one you know source for anything and you know kind of and i think so 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 i think they're going to be keeping africa close oil wise and keeping everyone else close as well um you know so i think i think they're just they're simply going to be making it as hard as possible to kind of press china into a corner particularly in relation to energy sourcing afshin is a subscriber to our daily email newsletter that kobus and i put out we would love for you to join afshin in reading our assessment every day think of it almost like a daily intelligence brief on everything that's going on not just in africa but also in the middle east north africa as well we're covering the whole region uh in in minute detail. So if you're like Afshin and you follow these details uh, closely, or you're just interested in foreign affairs, Chinese foreign policy, African politics, then this newsletter is ideal for you. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions start at just $7 for students and teachers. Academic discount for everybody in the academic space. We know that, uh, that you know, you scholars, Cobus, don't make a whole lot of money, but it's $15 for everybody else. And uh, we just would love for you to join our growing community of readers. If you have any questions whatsoever, feel free to reach out to Cobus or, or me. Uh, you can find me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com and Cobus, C-O-B-U-S, at chinaafricaproject.com. We're easy to reach and we'd love to, have, uh, love to hear from you. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Mm-hmm.